Life Audio. Hey, Dr. Bill Sinyard here with Gospel Rant. If the Song of Songs is the greatest gospel presentation in the Old Testament, which I've said, Movement 4 is the greatest gospel presentation in the entire song. When I do a Kiss of God weekend, this is the Saturday afternoon main show. This is the mic drop moment. This is the talk that ties it all together for participants and honestly changes lives. It's not just about exegeting a great piece of ancient Hebrew poetry. It's really seeing what God is doing with those who are unloved, who are feeling overlooked, who are feeling, who've been so shredded, abused, and dismissed relationally, and, and, and lost and lonely in this falling, groaning creation. You know, this isn't heaven. It's not even close, a little or a lot. Uh, but we can begin to experience it a little or a lot. So this show and the next four are about movement four. So strap in. Our hope is that you are wildly encouraged. If you feel the urge to dance, don't fight it. And listen, if you've benefited from this show, help us get the word out to others, men and women, boys and girls. I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit brought someone to mind. And you know what you need to do. Well, we will be right back after a word from our sponsors. But look around you, your family, your faith, they're not in the way. They are the way. From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story. It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up. It's not an option. The story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung hero of her king and country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Well, at last, we are at the central, pivotal movement in the Song of Songs, Movement 4. It's about the grand marriage ceremony between the king groom and his bride, the unlikely bride. Don't think of this as, you know, a literal timeline, as many interpreters unfortunately do. So very Western. Uh, so, right, the king and the queen meet in Movement 1. They date in Movements 2 to 3. They're finally married in Movement 4 and so forth. No, no, no. This is ancient Hebrew poetry. It's highly structured. Think of a pyramid with base being prologue and epilogue. And Tier 1 is Movements 1 and 7. Tier 2 is, is Movements 2 and 6. And then 3 and 5, all driving upward to the poetic alpha movement. The alpha predator, if you will. The alpha lover the central and pivotal movement for. It's the scandalous marriage and consummation of the marriage between the great lover king and the unlikely bride. It's the gospel. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful poetry. Movement four. Uh, The marriage, poetically, is not only central, but the way to see the Song of Songs is that it's, it's omnipresent. It hovers throughout the collection. The queen's struggle with worth 
and identity, her deep emotional wounds and unfulfilled longings, her paranoia or fears of being rejected, used and abused, her shame, her two heart questions, right? Is there anyone who really has my back out there no matter what? And second one, is there anyone out there who really loves me or am I lovable enough, right? Same, same question. They finally get answered at the marriage at least once. But she struggles with them over and over. Movements one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, over and over. Even though now in all of them, she's right in the embrace of the great lover king from epilogue to prologue. And that's what, that's us. That's our Christian walk. That's our Christian experience. Think of the queen and her emotions on a scale of zero to ten. You may imagine her, as you read this, as a two. Yeah, she's got some issues, but she's okay. Some of you, like me, see her at an eight. But she's on that scale somewhere. And the scale's probably very fluid. By the way, that's your Christian walk. That's mine as well. And that's the point. She, you, and I are in the loving embrace of the king, Christians. And we all too rarely feel it. We know it. Rarely feel it. Again, think scale zero to ten. You may be at a two today, but you're going to be at a six tomorrow. You may be at a seven today. You may be at a three tomorrow. And we know it. Our relatively weak prefrontal cortex checks the boxes, but our shadowy, murky midbrain, where most of our sense of well-being, lovableness, identity, sexuality, our sense of enoughness and connectedness are controlled, and it's highly protected. Uh, it's, It's highly protecting us from such a dangerous love as this king. And why? Because, like we've been saying, nothing has hurt us more than such love and relationships gone south. So your brain does what it does. It's highly protected against being so vulnerable again. And that's not all your fault. But there is something you can do about it. So imagine the silly image, a person standing in the surf as a tsunami is heading his or her way, 50-foot waves ready to engulf them, or maybe they're already engulfed and they're just standing there helplessly in the onslaught. But the onslaught is the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ, Ephesians 3. Right? It's, it's yours. It's been yours for 2,000 years, but sometimes, most of the time, a lot of times, we're unaware, except for moments, fragments of light breaking into the lonely darkness. We know we are loved, right, the prefrontal cortex, but we're not experiencing it like we could this side of heaven. Not perfectly, but we could experience it noticeably more. And maybe we've even lost expectations that that's part of the process. This is where God, the king, groom, finds the queen, finds us today, tomorrow, the next day. And he's not going to leave us there because it's not in his nature to just abandon And that's the picture in Movement 7, is that we're actually changed. We actually get the embrace. That's Movement 7. We'll talk about that later. We're not there yet. The hope is that we will begin to really know and experience the love of Christ a little more than we did yesterday and the day before. It's going to be noticeable. And others will notice, by the way. And until then, we remain largely unloved, again, scale, and to one degree or another, unlovely and unlovable. Again, the scale, 0 to 10. A little or a lot. Now, remember the queen's ambivalence at the beginning. Go back to podcast number seven in the series to be reminded of this. 
in the prologue, she is swimming in the king's shocking love. She's experiencing it. She's getting, she has been changed. She loves it. She wants more and she's verbal about it. Her defenses are down. She's becoming an equal partner, not in substance, right? Or innate glory, right? He's the king, but this, this partner in love, um, a love agent in the embrace, and she's making requests. By the way, she's making demands. It's exciting to see, and it seems like that's what he wants. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine, pleasing as the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We praise your love. More than wine, how right they are to adore you. Right? That's the queen getting it. She'll get it again in movement seven, but we're in movement four. So I said that that and movement seven is just a great poetic description of what worship is all about. Real worship is spirit and truth, but it's responsive. God reveals his word. He reveals his glory, his love. And my response is awe, being loved, and wanting more. That's worship. I've experienced this. I'm sure you have too. It's the worship dance where God leads. But then her midbrain wakes up, all right? Red flags, alarm bells, the guards light up. They slam the door shut. It's kind of an ancient image of relational PTSD, and I'm sure we've all experienced that as well too. Dark am I yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. I'm worshiping, then all of a sudden, boom. What was I thinking? Me too. No judgment for me. I experience, right? Know and feel his love. And then shame rushes up from inside. It draws from this bottomless pit of shame and self-criticism. And I'm alone again. And I fear that, you know, God's unfaithful or he's better than than, than he, he deserves more than me. I feel like a prostitute, you know. I'm dark yet lovely again, loved and yet feel unloved, unlovable, uh, impure, unworthy. And the swings from one side to the other are breathtaking this side of heaven. It's like some crazy amusement park ride. The point of all of this is not just to highlight how emotionally and relationally broken she is, or and we are, a little or a lot, think that zero to ten scale, but to even more highlight the power of the pursuing love of the king that leans against the, my present shame and brokenness and loneliness and anxiety inside of me, inside of her, inside of you. This king innately pursues, rescues, and embraces unloved, unlovable, and unlovely queens. That's us. That's the process. That's the walk this side of heaven. Heaven is going to be filled with them, fully redeemed, fully glorified, fully getting it. Uh, not so this side of heaven. And I can prove it. Look at your church. So many of those queens are sufferers of relational and emotional PTSD. And they're all in one building trying to get along, trying to do things together. And that explains the messiness, right? I'm just saying, it makes a lot of sense. And God keeps loving and pursuing us. Well, here's the right question. Why can't we experience the love of Christ all the time? We have it. It's ours. Theologian John Calvin struggled with that very same question in his magnum opus, The Institutes of Christian Religion. Here is my interpretive and modernized version of what he said. So why do believers feel such anxiety and fears related to their relationship with God? 
Why do we have so many violent temptations that just keep coming to our brains, unending wave after wave, that inevitably cause us to doubt God's goodness, God's love for us, and our position as his child? Why doesn't faith give us more certainty? Why don't we just feel stunning confidence and assurance of God's adoration all the time? For reasons known only to God this side of heaven, we are not promised a certainty and assurance of our relational attachment to God that's never affected by fears, doubts, shame, or anxiety. We are saved into a lifetime of struggle with our dysfunctional consciences that spew out fear and doubts. This is our charge, listen, to learn to be aware of our struggle and to lean into faith to overcome our inner doubts and fears more regularly. This side of heaven, our consciences will never be still or fear and anxiety free. Yeah. Look, this is our job, our calling as disciples, to, quote, lean into faith. And he means a God-sourced faith, not anything that we can drum up on our own. This is not some theological positive statement of fake it till you make it faith, right? Uh, to overcome our inner doubts and fears more regularly, close quote. Man, that's so wildly modern and sophisticated for a 16th century theologian. And spot on. Have you heard this? This is the moral of the Song of Songs. This is, okay, now that I've read the poetry, what do I do? How can the relationally damaged queen really begin to access the experience of love of the king more. And of course, same for you and me. And to top it off poetically, she's already in his arms the whole time, but keeps checking out emotionally. Past hurts were so traumatic, her brain is trying to protect her. Is this resonating? Right? I do it, you do it. Not if you agree. (laughs) So why is it so hard? Simple answer. Your brain is fighting against it 24-7. Not all your fault. Now, it's that part that has not been fully healed by the grace of the king. It will be heaven. The plan is that you and I are to keep asking for this power, Ephesians 3, to beat back, diminish, uh, push down our brain's protective barriers daily. That's the bridal role. To get prepared, I'll say more about that. First, I suppose that we actually need to admit that we can't do this independently, that we actually need God-sourced faith on an ongoing basis to begin to even ask for God-sourced power, which can only make me begin to make me grasp the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for me and for others. That's Ephesians 3. So what am I supposed to do? Oh my gosh, it's so simple, beloved. Ask. Demand. Like, like the queen did in, in the prologue, just ask again and again and again. That's your role. You can do it from your prefrontal cortex. Imagine experiencing God's love right now, right? Spectrum 0 to 10, 10's heaven. And not just knowing about God's love. To be clear, this is experiencing and knowing God's love, not just knowing about it, um, right? It's being confident because I feel that confidence. It's, it's more than just believing that it's mine. It's, it's I'm actually feeling it. I'm getting it, something new. Here's a simple analogy. I did a marriage ceremony for my son and his wife a few years back. They hadn't received a marriage certificate from the government yet and called me for the info. And it all worked out. But as I looked at the copy of the marriage document that I filled out and mailed in, I could legally testify that they're married. But that's a document. 
right? The witnesses would agree, but that's just their testimony. That's not the big deal about their marriage. Their marriage is all about experiencing each other and the love of each other, right? That's the good stuff. Same thing with God. By the way, Satan knows about the love of God. He knows how great it is. But that knowledge does him zero good. He's not experiencing it. He never will. So today, are you experiencing it at a two or a five or a seven? And no matter where you are, we want more for you. And even then, even more tomorrow. So, and this is my story, and I'm going to tell you from experience, 30 years of ministry, this is what Christians would say in moments of stark vulnerability and honesty. We have experienced this love once. It was euphoric for so many, and I know a lot of you were, came to Christ so young, you don't remember this, but it happened. Um, it did all of the things that intimate relationships do in your brain. There's a euphoria, a sense of joy, right? Dope hits. There's wonder. There's feeling loved and adored. There's a rush of trust and faith. Oxytocin is a brain chemical that, that made, that, made you feel it. What we call belief or faith, a belief in a God, that he, not only that he's there, but that he adores you right now. Shame and guilt are dramatically reduced or absent in this present rush of dopamine. Their grimy, strangling hands are pulled back into the shadows for now. We're in the present, in the arms of God, being kissed. Nothing like it ever before. We get what the queen was saying clearly, in spite of most of the exegetes who say this was only a historic poem for a, a woman, a human woman, and a human man. Oh, no, no, this is so much more. This is a trope for God kissing us, salvation, rescue. You know, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, don't arouse or even awaken this love until it so desires. You know, that is human, human love, but even bigger, it's, it's the love of God in you and you and God. Oh, baby, right? I've never felt anything like it, is what she's saying, very rough translation. So for me then, there was a saving experience of belief, awareness, a hit when I was 21. I felt God's love so powerfully. Uh, I had been busted in sin. I was feeling shame and guilt, a lot of fear. And then, boom, someone said, I should put all of that bundle of my bag of crap on Jesus' shoulders on the cross and see him, watch him reach down, take it off of me, and put it onto his own shoulders. Then, then look up into his eyes. Oh, that's so important. See what happens. And there, I did. There was only love and joy towards me. No resentment, no guilt trip, no shaming, no anger, no probation. I couldn't process it all. It was ridiculously unbelievable. But I experienced it. Not what I had been told about Jesus. Not what I had been told about the law. I'm just saying I felt so free, so honored, so special, so loved that there was someone out there who really loved me as I was, not as I should be, someone who I miraculously trusted, and he had my back. Fast forward 15 years. I had plunged into a lot of stuff. I was into evangelism, Bible studies, ministry, uh, uh, church stuff, right? As a layperson, leading worship, discipleship, witnessing. Uh, then in seminary. I was the ever-ready bunny. In my first year at seminary, I was getting counseled from the spiritual theology professor, Dr. James Houston. I was stuck, uh, feeling like an odd duck there, unsure. I was experiencing God's love less and less and less and less and less. Christianity had become very rational to me, very theological, uh, but not, 
I wasn't, I was feeling apart from Jesus. Then the spirit did something. I was sitting there in Dr. Houston's office and in a flash, in a moment, I experienced something that I can only describe as the very same dope rush, the same oxytocin at the same drop in serotonin that I experienced 15 years earlier. I felt the love of God. And and the only way I can explain it is it's similar to the love experiences that I received from my spouse, from my marriage, only bigger and deeper. And, and I could only say this, before I had felt loved by Jesus, this time I can say I actually felt liked by him. Now, I'm shame prone. That means so much to me. Um, but I got it. I was so confident. I, I experienced that. It's a miracle. And this experience was not just knowledge, it was knowledge, but I already knew that he liked me. I just wasn't feeling it at the time. I was the queen. And maybe this will help. I asked a Christmas Eve service of 20-somethings a confidential question, what do you fear the most? What are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night? And they were the usual suspects, I mean, bears and spiders and hidden sin being found out, death, those kind of things. But the checklist also consisted of queen-like fears. And I'm just going to read a few. I'm afraid that I'm not good enough for God. I fear I will not be loved by God. God, I'm afraid I will always be alone. I don't live up to God or my family's expectations. Fear that I fall short in how I measure up to God. Fear I don't love him enough. What if it's not true? Do I really deserve love from anyone? What if I do not hear, well done, good and faithful servant? What if God lets me lose everything? How can I act out my faith with my family and my friends if that happens? Not working hard enough to receive his grace. Where are you? Fear that I'm unlovable. I'm so ashamed of both my extensive sexual past and my narcotic use that has caused some really bad and stupid selfish behaviors. I fear both things will prevent close relationships of any kind. Oh my gosh, that's so queen-like. Will I ever be who I need to be with God? Will I ever be forgiven for all the things I've done? I'm afraid to be alone, to end up alone, that I would stop believing in God. If I do something really bad, will the Lord still help me? Fear of God seeing me as a big disappointment. Fear that I'm losing my faith, rejection and abandonment, that I'm not good enough for God to love me, inadequate, ugly, fear of being hurt, fear of letting people know who I am, I'm a pleaser, shame that I'm divorced, that I suffer from depression, that I have struggled with alcohol, afraid no one will ever love me. Why am I always afraid of failure, always performing, maintaining image? Will God actually receive me at death? Am I really his beloved son or will I be left again? Fear of failing. Do I really believe or am I the failure behind the curtain? Being exposed as an unrighteous, undeserving person. Why do I feel I'm not worth anything being alone? Oh my goodness. You resonate, yeah? Yeah. And there are so many more. These are not the exceptions to the rule. This is just the, the, the majority finally vulnerable and unmasked. This is why it's so important to get the gospel of the Song of Songs out there. It is so relevant. Here's Calvin again, my modernized version. I think he would be okay with the changes I've made. There are some who have things so very confused. They know that God's mercy is great and is showered upon many corporately like the church. 
but are just not comfortable with God showering his mercy upon them individually. Experientially, on a day-to-day basis, they imagine it out of their reach for other people, not them. Maybe they are afraid that they have messed up so much or feel that they deserve only punishment and discipline. Just beneath the surface, these men and women are sadly riddled and harassed by miserable fears, shame, doubts, and anxieties. Oh, whew. In Song of Songs terms, we are dark yet lovely, right? Back to Calvin. Very different is that feeling of full assurance, pleuraphoria, that the scriptures uniformly attribute to heavenly sourced faith. It's an assurance which leaves no doubt to my brain that the goodness, by the way, when he says goodness, he's including God's favor, his love, his like, uh, him being proud of you, that he has your back, right? So the goodness of God is clearly offered to me right now. It should be very noticeable, I would imagine. And when I get this spirit-sourced assurance in my brain, I will perceive its sweetness. I will know that God's favor is indeed towards me as I am right now. I get it in my head and heart that this relational attachment is now mine. I now know and experience that this is true. This is beyond emotionalism. This is real identity level awareness. God-sourced faith and this God-sourced assurance are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. And hence, from this faith, the apostle deduces confidence. And from the confidence, boldness, his words are, in Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Ephesians 3.12. Thus, undoubtedly showing that my faith is not true unless it enables me to calmly look up into God's measuring gaze, expecting, keyword, expecting to be adored and honored as if I had been perfectly faithful. What an amazing miracle to know beyond my brain's ability to comprehend that this relationship is mine, eternally mine, that I cannot nor have not messed it up. Such miraculous, mysterious boldness springs only from this confidence in God's adoration toward me and the salvation which ultimately comes to me right now from this heavenly faith. So true is this that the term faith is often used as an equivalent to confidence. Whew. All right, this is probably a good time to get another word from our sponsors. <laughs> we'll let you think about that, and we will be right back. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once.
John Calvin said that sons and daughters of God can regularly ask the Spirit to give them power to access uh, this deep sense of pleroforia, which is Greek for assurance, of how God feels towards them, towards us, towards you and me right now. How good is that? This heavenly pleroforia causes us, makes us know right now, not only that God is good or even that God is good to us, we become confident that God loves us as we are, not as we should be. Our doubts and fears and shame are for a moment impotent. Not perfectly, that's heaven, but it's noticeable. This is beyond emotionalism. This is an identity level awareness, and it changes us. The dance rises to a much higher and much more personal level. We are ugly ducklings. We are the toys from the aisles of misfit toys. But we're in the dance, an equal partner. Ah, The spirit-sourced assurance frees us to more confidently draw near to God. Hebrews 10.22. So think of the queen in his embrace. It enables us to calmly look up into God's measuring gaze, expecting to be adored as if we had been perfectly faithful. What an amazing miracle to know beyond our brain's ability to comprehend that this relationship is ours right now. We become miraculously confident that we can't mess it up. And a boldness springs up from this unreasonable pleroforia of God's favor towards us from this heavenly sourced spirit faith. Can you imagine? Wouldn't this change your sense of worship on Sunday, your, your prayers, your communion, uh, taking the table, your ministry, your, your other relationships, because you wouldn't need the approval of others as much. How do we know we have this, the spirit pleroforia? Well, one thing that happens is it quiets and calms our naturally troubled consciences. This is so important today when anxiety is so high and worries are so high and fears are so high. It's the peace in the troubles that surpasses our comprehension. We are feeling calmer. And until then, we always wonder if we have done enough or have done enough right. Do we measure up to God's favor? Will he actually use me? Will I fail? Will he have my back? Well, all those for a moment are diminished. Empowered by this God-sourced assurance, we enter today knowing that when we look up into his measuring gaze, we will always see a smile towards us and him saying, I've got this. And when we experience his love, really feel it, we change. We become an active partner in the love between us and God a little. We begin to really love others a little versus leveraging others to soothe our guilt and anxieties and worries. (laughs) Okay, I probably stepped on some toes, pulled pulled the Band-Aid off of some infected wounds in this show. I hope so anyway, but I want to step back and remind us all of a tool that we've been using throughout the series, The Simple and Cluttered Gospel. There is no intrinsic power in it. It just reflects the powerful gospel. When you say it aloud, you're proclaiming the gospel to that dark, anxious, murky, largely unreached people group, your midbrain. It's just doing what it was designed to do. It's protecting you from getting hurt again. But it's shielding you from the ongoing experience of the love of God for you. It's closing the door to this God-sourced pleroforia. So you could keep working harder, uh, but that's not going to help. Your midbrain is you. So until you can, like an infant, look up into your caregiver's adoring, attuning stare, uh, you're not going to get any further. And to do that, you need power. Uh, so back to that scale. If you came to this particular show a two and something's happening, you're leaving it at a three, that's a 50% improvement. That's a dance. 
If you came at a six and you left an eight, boom, that's a 33% shot. Take it. Dance. Right? And, and here's how we do that. Just listen to the simple uncluttered gospel as I read it. Let it wash over you. Let it seep in. Be aware of how your midbrain is going to react because it is. Uh, is it? Is it come across angry, defensive, ashamed, passive-aggressive? You know, what's wrong with me that you haven't heard this before? Or what? Put it in your own words. That's a clue to where the gospel power needs to work. Write it down. And I would be honored if you share that clue with me. Bill at gospel-app.com. Good to say it out loud. Good to share it with somebody I found. Well, I want you to say the simple and colored gospel twice a day for 45 days. We are fighting a habit with power, word for word. Please, so here it is. Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more. He can't love you any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news, there is something you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. Well, twice a day, 45 days. We didn't get too far into movement four. Uh, take the time uh, to read it aloud. Chapter three, verse six to five, one. Next show, we're going to look at the marriage procession. It's quite a show. My first book, which is the must read on the Song of Songs, The Kiss of God is available at Amazon. Check it out. I'm still writing my updated book on the Song of Songs, but I've shifted to finish a book on overlooked and underappreciated women in the Old Testament. It's fascinating, interesting, lots of fun. These ladies need to have their stories told. Many of these great women have flown so far under the radar, you won't even remember their stories, but you will now. They deserve this uh, acknowledgement. If you want to know when the book is going to be published, get, get on the list, bill at gospel-app.com. And please, I'm begging you to get the word out about uh, the podcast on Movement 4. They, they should be radically life-changing for people who wonder if God is disappointed in them. Um, like those 20-somethings, right? And that's most of us. No doubt the Spirit brought somebody to mind, a man or a woman. So you know what to do. Right? Call them, send them a link, forward it, put it on social media. This is good stuff, and you can have some fun. Another favor, follow this podcast. Very important. If there were a thousand people who followed this particular podcast, or even better, commented about this particular show, you can do it online or bill at gospel-app.com, you would be surprised how many people would take the chance to listen for the 30 minutes. Send me your comments and I'll post them on my website, bill at gospel-app.com. Thanks to Life Audio for their support. Take heart, child of God. Hi, I'm Zach. And I'm Randy. And we're from Salty Saints Podcast. We're a theology and apologetics podcast. To find out more, subscribe at lifeaudio.com.